Welcome back again, ladies and gentlemen. Lazo Montgomery here with you once again for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast, as I always promise you at the end of each episode. I was planning to uh, take this subject only up to 1911, uh, the fall of the Qing. Then I had second thoughts and decided to throw in a few extra decades at no additional cost. And we'll take it up to 1949. Let's see how far we can go today. And then we'll finish off this series next time in part 12. Last episode, we looked at the rise and fall of the Tsongars from Galdan to Amursana. And over on the Qing side, this was Kangxi to Qianlong. But as the dynasty ultimately found out, trying to incorporate this great prize into their already sizable empire was not easy or economical. As the 1760s unfolded, the Qing court found themselves with two main headaches in this newly conquered land. First of all, the tax base, as it existed in Xinjiang at this moment in time, was insufficient to finance ongoing operations there. And for such a massive province at any given time, there simply wasn't enough Manchu Qing muscle power on the ground. They were limited in how much they were able to enforce their rule. So the Qing had to rely on carpetbaggers and local begs to be their eyes and ears and collect taxes. But once these people were in place, they started feasting on the local populace. And as it happens, this created social instability and popular unrest. How many times has that happened in world history? Variations on this theme will keep repeating over and over in all the oasis towns and all the basins of Xinjiang. And this merciless taxation and shaken down residents by unscrupulous officials representing some government the common people had never heard of, over and over, there will be uprisings. And over on the other side of the Xinjiang border, no one was particularly happy with the new arrangement and having the likes of China now right on their doorstep, so to speak. Not that there's anything wrong with China, but that's quite a big neighbor to so suddenly move into your neighborhood. And there were two other empires also a little concerned about the whole Xinjiang province thing. This was Russia and Britain. And as soon as the 19th century starts to unfold, those two will play a legendary great game with China and Central Asia. All three nations were extremely weary of each other and kept a tight lid on their respective spheres of control. And they didn't want any encroachment on what they said was theirs, even though, historically speaking, prior to then, it wasn't. The trees of Nerchinsk and Kyakta had stifled trade, as it had always been carried out. And Central Asia, because of the geopolitical situation, became quasi-partitioned between the three great powers, Russia, China, and Britain. Who was able to trade with who became so tightly controlled that it created an environment unsuited to free and unfettered trade between distant partners, something that had allowed this massive part of the world to thrive for so many centuries on end. And right around the 1800s, Central Asia, for the first time in world history, started to fall behind the rest of the world, and frankly speaking, to varying extents, is still playing catch-up. Even today, the richest country in Central Asia, Kazakhstan, with all those natural resources, their economy is only ranked 55th in the world, with Uzbekistan 78th, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan 
142nd and 143rd. Up to now, in this Xinjiang history series, we've only known of this great Central Asian landmass as a world leader in almost everything. I didn't mention the Central Asian Renaissance that lasted from the Tang to the Song, and the explosion of art, science, learning, and architecture, not to mention poetry and literature. This preceded the Italian Renaissance by centuries. But now, hard times were arriving in Central Asia, just as the surrounding coastal world and all the maritime trade was about to soar to great heights. And instead of people in control of their own destiny, those in eastern Central Asia found themselves pawns of either the Russians, the British, or the Chinese. The ensuing economic decline of this region was swift and long-lasting. Such a far cry from those times of all the great conquerors of days past who we heard of in previous episodes. Last time in Part 10, we looked at the Qing dynasty in its heyday, the four great emperors who got to be at the helm when the dynasty was going nowhere but up. And just as Xunzhi, Kangxi, Yongzheng, Qianlong means one thing, Jiaqing, Daoguang, Xianfeng, and Tongzhi was the complete opposite. Two opposites of the same empire and dynasty. Unfortunately for China, at this stage of the game, the technology simply didn't exist yet that would facilitate an easy and efficient takeover of Xinjiang. Transportation and communication was good, but not good enough to run a tight ship. So what else could the Manchus do except leave everything in the hands of the locals and hope for the best? And the maintenance of Xinjiang was proving to be prohibitively expensive. And remember, at the start of the 1840s, the century of humiliation had just kicked off. So at a time like this, reeling from rebellion and only waking up to what was happening in the rest of the world, Xinjiang didn't rank that high on the list of priorities. So things started to slip. But in the north of Xinjiang, at least, the first century after Qianlong's conquest of this Muslim land was relatively peaceful and stable. The Tarim Basin had changed little and had not yet felt the full force of the Qing dynasty. As I said, the Qing court subcontracted the management of the south of Xinjiang out to the local begs, and whatever animosity or hard feelings existed between the Uyghurs and the invaders, it was mostly directed at the Manchus and less so the Han. And by 1853, the year the Taiping rebels took the city of Nanjing and made it their capital, whatever funds there were in the treasury went to fighting rebels. The government support stopped flowing westward. The Qing dynasty was fighting for its very survival and would have to put Xinjiang on the back burner until the last of these rebellions were put down. And that's pretty much what happened. With no one in charge... The corruption and abuse by local officials was like nothing the region had ever seen. Taxation was out of control, and Uyghur men faced all kinds of dangers as conscription and other dangers became rife. The Manchus, who had the misfortune to be serving in this part of the empire at this time, with no love being shown to them by the imperial court out east, their situations deteriorated to the point where they could no longer do their job and just became local forlorn fixtures of the towns they served in, present but no longer in charge. The post-Qing conquest, toxic soup that was Xinjiang, and especially the Tarim Basin, 
led to a great deal of suffering and popular discontent. And there were always outside players stirring the you-know-what to influence events. And the scent of rebellion was always in the air. So in 1864, with the U.S. Civil War happening on the other side of the world, rebellion broke out. It began with the Dungans. These people were Muslims, but not Uyghur Muslims, nor were they Turkic. The Dungans belonged to the Hui ethnic minority. These Hui were Han Chinese, who just happened to be Muslim, too. There's more than 20 million Hui in China today. Hui are all over China, but Gansu and Ningxia has a pretty high concentration. In many cases, they were a byproduct of the ancient Silk Road, and had either married into the faith or just embraced it early on. The Chinese called them Hui, and the Europeans called them Dungans. Although they shared a common faith, they didn't get along with the Uyghurs, and at times they were terrible enemies. And the Hui had had enough of being preyed upon by local officials out to line their pockets while the Qing dynasty was tied up fighting for its very survival back east. So the Dungans rose up, not against the dynasty. Their beef was with the Manchu Chinese and Mongol bureaucratic oppressors who were squeezing them for all they were worth, and then some. Everything came to a head in June 1864, when rumors started to go around the Hui community that the Tongzhi Emperor, son of the Empress Dowager Cixi, was going to send the military to Xinjiang and wipe them out in a preemptive strike and do away with all their belly aching. And this rumor had legs, spreading all around Xinjiang, in Kucha, Urumqi, Yarkhan, Kashgar, Yengisar, and then one by one throughout the entirety of the Tarim Basin, this Dungan revolt spread. And when the fighting reached the Turpan Basin in Hami, all signs of Qing authority were attacked. And before long, all the other Turkic Muslims joined the fray. These included the Uyghurs. Now, mind you, back then they were not calling themselves Uyghurs, but these were mostly the people who today call Xinjiang home. So what was initially a revolt led by the Hui ethnic minority turned into a general Muslim free-for-all directed against the Qing dynasty for grandfathering all this local abuse meted out by their representatives that the people had to put up with since the conquest. At this time, Xinjiang's Muslim communities were not fighting amongst themselves. Though not everyone practiced their Islam the same way, they all, this early in the game, generally got along. And as I mentioned, no beef with the Qing either. It was the utter mismanagement of the economy that was causing all this popular uproar. At midway through the 1860s, Xinjiang developed into a patchwork of small turfs ruled by local strongmen. And with this breakdown in governing and order... All of those immediately to the west of Xinjiang, Kazakhs, Uzbeks, Kyrgyz, other Turkic peoples, they saw an opening to exploit. And this is where Yaakob Beg enters our story. He's a man of history, completely enveloped in myths, legends, and propaganda. I'll spare you the fluff and just talk about what some of the history books I read had to say. He came from what's today Uzbekistan, but back then was the Kokand Khanet. Three sources I read all differed on whether Yaakob Beg was Uzbek, Tajik, or Kyrgyz. 
the Kokandis had moved in on the western Tarim Basin and had taken over a sizable part. Jakob Begg had made a minor name for himself as an agitator and adventurer. And in 1865, he found himself at the head of a small Kokand army attacking Kashgar. The mission was to displace the Kyrgyz who had moved in and taken the place over. After his first taste of victory in Kashgar, Jakob Begg made a decision to split from the Kokand Khanate. Over 1865 and into 1866, Jakob Begg was neck deep in all the fighting for local power happening in Kashgar and Yarkand. Upon capturing a Qing fort in Kashgar, his troops carried out a massacre of all Chinese and Manchus. And from this Kashgar base, Jakob Begg's forces throughout 1866 began taking over all the oasis towns of the southern Tarim Basin before taking Kucha in the north in 1867. Jakob Begg and his followers warred throughout Xinjiang for years. It was a time of constant, small-scale, but vicious and gory battles with rivals savaging each other. By 1871, pretty much all of southern Xinjiang, always the most Muslim part of Xinjiang, was controlled by Jakob Begg. And like Hong Xiaoquan did when he became a heavenly emperor, Jakob Begg constructed quite an elaborate and pompous court in Kashgar, very plush and filled with all the diversity of Central Asia, the peoples and other cultural aspects. He began to style himself as a kind of Islamic defender of the faith and a jihadi with this quest to go after the Chinese and Manchu infidels and expel them from this Muslim land, that is to say, the parts that he held sway over. And he wasn't faking it either. Jakob Begg was a true believer who instituted Sharia law and personally saw to it that it was strictly enforced. And just because people called themselves Muslim and prayed five times a day, well, not everyone was on board with that strict of observance. The local Uyghurs, by and large, weren't so hot about the whole matter of Sharia law and the taxes, too. For these long-time inhabitants of the oasis towns of Xinjiang, where taxes were concerned, it was always a case of meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Ephemeral and longer-lasting powers had come and gone, always wanting the same thing. And the Russians, looking down at all this from the north, Oh, they didn't like what they were seeing on their southern doorstep. Never one to pass up an opportunity in what was packaged up as a preemptive measure to protect their interests from the potential ravages of Jakob Begg's soldiers and all the unrest he was causing. They plowed into the Ili Valley portion of North Xinjiang and took it over. And in June 1872 the Russians signed a treaty with Jakob Begg, recognizing his regime as the legitimate rulers of Xinjiang. And the British, not wanting to be left out of this great game, they too gladly got to know Jakob Begg. And there are a good many writings by British diplomats and adventurers who met Jakob Begg and wrote very colorful memories of what his magnificent court in Kashgar was like. The British shared Russia's concern for what the rise of Jakob Begg meant to their Central Asian investments, and most of all in India. But Jakob Begg was an occupier, not a conqueror or freedom fighter looking to create something new. 
The Manchu Qing had their hands full at the moment and had to watch helplessly at what was happening in Xinjiang. With the Qing Empire having its hands full, dealing with the Taiping Rebellion, 1850-1864, Nian Rebellion, 1851-1868, the Panthe Rebellion in the south in Yunnan, 1856-1872, and these Dungan Revolts, 1862-1877. And if this wasn't enough, as they were trying to put down these rebellions, foreigners were pounding down the doors, making all manners of demands. Yakob Beg's troops mostly stayed in the south of the Tarim Basin, while the Qing remnants were concentrated in the north, in Zungaria. And not soon after Yakob Beg took over all these towns rimming the Tarim Basin, he wore out his welcome pretty fast. Between the taxes and the breakdown in civil society, people began to tire of his occupation. And sadly, they recalled the days before Yakob Beg when well, at least the trains ran on time, so to speak. During the 1870s, after the conquest of most of Xinjiang by Yakob Beg was complete, well, like the Dzungars, Yakob Beg found his territory uncomfortably sandwiched in between the Russians and Chinese. There was a nagging fear that China might somehow get its act together. And if that happened, well, it would put Yakob Beg in the same boat that past Dzungar Khans found themselves in. To shore up his security in Xinjiang in the case of any great rejuvenation in China, Yakob Beg carried out vigorous diplomatic relations with the Russians and British. And to make nice with Tsarist Russia, Yakob Beg offered all kinds of trading rights for them in Xinjiang. And the British, they too were hoping for relations, and after giving full recognition to Yakob Beg's government in Xinjiang, they allowed him to keep an ambassador in London. How's that for interfering in China's internal affairs. So Jakob Beg was an early pioneer in manipulating foreigners to his advantage. And these friendly relations led to increased arms sales to Jakob Beg, as well as enhancing his image in the region as a legend in the Islamic world. And in order to build his brand in the eyes of the people, Jakob Beg even claimed descent from Tamerlane and tried to wrap himself up in all kinds of Jingisid and Islamic legitimacy. His strategy was to build up his power and use his diplomatic relations with Britain to ward off any potential recovery of China. And that way, if the Qing dynasty was able to be taken off their respirator and decided to return and reconquer Xinjiang, he'd be able to keep them out. But looking at the condition of the Qing dynasty, no one in their right mind could see them rising to the occasion they were a living, breathing definition of a dying empire. The Russians and British played their great game to protect their own interests in Asia, and Jakob Beg was tangled up with all the strange machinations of these two great 19th century empires. Back in Beijing, the same old argument was being fought at court over the importance and criticality of Xinjiang to the Qing Empire. Lined up on one side were the proponents of making Xinjiang part of China. And on the other side were all those who said that place wasn't worth the price. Never had the treasury been more empty at a time when funds were desperately needed to fund a budding military and keep up with reparations. And many argued that, well, what was the use of wasting money to reconquer Xinjiang if, if the cost to hold on to it meant it would surely be lost again? 
from any angle you looked at Xinjiang. From the Chinese perspective, it wasn't looking terribly promising. They needed both a miracle and a hero. And that, my friends, is where the man behind the great American dish, General Tso's Chicken, enters our story. Tso Zong Tang, this man, was one of China's greatest modern warriors. He took part in all the rebellions of the day, fighting against the Taipings, Nian, and Dongan rebels. Besides his military service to China, Zuo Zongtang also later served as a high-ranking official and was a scholar to boot, and very accomplished in agriculture, bringing this particular expertise he had to all the places he served. Zuo Zongtang famously came from Hunan, from the city of Yueyang, not very far from where the great Chu Kingdom scholar and poet from the Warring States period, Chu Yuan, committed suicide. General Zuo controlled a highly trained army, mostly made up of Hunanese. And if you remember from that Warlord series, I mentioned Zhang Guofan and his Hunan army. The army Zuo Zongtang controlled was also called the Hunan army, but had a different Chinese name than the one created and led by Zhang Guofan. And as I said, he fought in both the Taiping and Nian rebellions. By this time in the dynasty, the Manchus knew they were way in over their heads with world events happening so fast and furiously. From here on out, all the important stuff in the country was left to the Chinese, especially where national defense was concerned. After a good showing against the Taipings in 1866, Zuo Zongtang was made governor general of Gansu and Shanxi, northwest China. There, he led the fight to put down the Nian rebels who had caused so much economic devastation in the north of China. The Dungan revolt was still going on, but that would have to wait until 1873, after Zuo Zongtang's Hunan army was finished with the Nian. Aside from being so destructive... War can also be a strain on the pocketbook. And what limited funds the Qing treasury had were being fought over by other vested interests. Li Hongzhang and Zhou Zongtang had to contend for those funds. What was more critical to the Qing empire, coastal or frontier defense? How was Li Hongzhang going to build that navy if all those funds got diverted to shoring up China's northwest frontier with Russia and beyond Xinjiang's borders? Zhou Zongtang gave a compelling argument to the emperor's court about Britain's and Russia's designs on Xinjiang and how that place was so critical to each of those two nations' respective interests. If China could not hold on to Xinjiang, it would leave Mongolia wide open for exploitation by Russia. And with Mongolia acting as China's buffer in the north, well, Beijing would be vulnerable. Look how much Russia had snatched and grabbed already in the Northeast. It was a convincing argument. In April 1875, Zhuo Zongtang was made imperial commissioner for Xinjiang affairs. This slot had always been filled by Manchus or Mongols, never a Han Chinese. As I said, the Manchus were now more than willing to let the Chinese in these positions of power. Once Zhuo Zongtang got settled... He began assembling a fighting machine 60,000 strong and armed them to the teeth with all the latest Western arms and killing devices. From 1874 to 1876, training was ramped up 
and Zhou Zongtang's army got prepared for the onslaught against what Jacob Beg had going in Xinjiang. And despite all the well-known impediments to logistics and supplying a land so far away from the center of the country, Zhou Zongtang, he knew his stuff and overcame all the logistical setbacks that befell him prior to D-Day. As I mentioned, he also knew a thing or two about agricultural science and dealt with the grain shortage by turning some of his troops into farmers, which is probably what most of them were back in Hunan. And to supplement what they couldn't get from China, Zhou Zongtang also arranged for grain purchases from Russia. If they were going to fail in their mission, it wasn't going to be because of hunger. And by the way, do you know who was uh, helping to finance this reconquest of Xinjiang by Zhou Zongtang? Yeah, good old HSBC, the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation. And in addition to this financing, special taxes were raised in the provinces to pay their share of the cost. After all, with Xinjiang as part of China, everyone in China proper would be a beneficiary in some way or another. So they had to cough up their share. So China was betting big on Xinjiang. The army Zhou Zongtang was leading was something these ancient desert and oasis lands had never seen before. In August of 1876, General Zhou's army quickly took Urumqi, and within three months, all of Tungaria was under Qing control, save for the portion of the Ili Valley that Russia had gone in and grabbed, saying they'd you know, give it back when all was stable again. The last thing the Russians expected was that someone like Zhou Zongtang might come along and do away with Jakob Beg so quickly. As the Hunan army was training and preparing for these battles, Jakob Beg had been busy making deals with the British and Russians. He had counted on them to be his diplomatic allies and support his state against any probable invasion from the east. Even after Urumqi was taken, Jakob Beg, scrambling for a lifeline and not getting one, saw his whole Kashgarian dream slowly go up in smoke. He had tried to play rope-a-dope with the Hunan army while a diplomatic resolution was attempted. When defeat was imminent, Jakob Beg tried to cut the best deal he could, even though, by the looks of it, the Qing were going to come in and take everything, whether he offered it or not. One of the intermediaries Jakob Beg was pleading with on the British side was none other than the great sinologist Thomas Wade, of Wade Giles' fame. He served the British for 30 years in China. In the end, Jakob Beg was hoping, in exchange for submitting to the Qing, he would at least be able to hold on to Kashgaria. Thanks to Jakob Beg's friends in high places, this deal he was offering was being mulled over in Beijing. But after the spring of 1877, the Qing forces had enjoyed a string of victories in the Tarim Basin, and the total conquest of Xinjiang was now looking like an inevitability. And I wanted to mention, the general who was actually in the field leading the troops for Zhou Zongtang was another Hunanese named Liu Jintang. Well, as I said, there was this mystique about Jakob Beg. So much of his life is shrouded in legend he was going down in defeat. What's strange is that pound for pound, Jakob Beg's army on paper could have been a formidable opponent to the Hunan army. But rather than use that home field advantage and all that modern firepower purchased from Russia, 
he hung in there too long, keeping his powder dry and waiting for that Hail Mary to happen with a favorable diplomatic solution. And then, all of a sudden, May 30th, 1877, Jacob Begg died. From a stroke, it said. Many Chinese sources said he committed suicide in despair. You know, like they said about Galdon. We'll never know. All we know is that once Jacob Begg, this bigger-than-life figure, once he was gone, everything he had held together in Xinjiang started to fall apart. Right after he died, there was a vigorous scrum amongst his allies to fill his shoes, but in the end, Jacob Begg's Kashgaria was finished. There were no competent seconds-in-command waiting to take over. All the Hunan army, on behalf of the Qing dynasty, all they had to do was just go in and mop up. In the end, the long, drawn-out battle with Jakob Begg's army never came. A lot of the animus that exists between China's Muslim citizens and the government could trace the root of these hard feelings back to this time. The whole matter of us versus them in Xinjiang, at least, some say it all started here, right after the fall of Jakob Begg and all the heartache that was to follow in the coming decades. And in the beginning of 1878, after Khotan had fallen, General Liu Jintang, on behalf of Zhou Zhongtang and the Manqing Zhengfu, was able to pose for the camera in front of that mission-accomplished banner. The entire operation to reconquer Xinjiang had only taken something like 70 days. No wonder Zhou Zhongtang got a chicken dish named after him. Liu Jintang was made the first governor general of Xinjiang, and Russia, who in 1871 had gone and glommed onto the Ili Valley portion of the northwest Xinjiang border, ostensibly to protect their numerous citizens and interests from Jakob Beg, reluctantly had to hand it over. Russian and Qing representatives first signed the Treaty of Levadia. The Qing representative who signed it later got chastised for agreeing to such a one-sided document that practically handed the wealth of Xinjiang to the Russians on a silver platter. The Qing imperial court in February 1880, once they had studied the details agreed to and saw how one-sided it appeared, rejected it outright. The Empress Dowager Cixi didn't like the terms of that deal, but her guy had signed it. This put both sides in an awkward position, and all of a sudden... There was talk of war in the air. To defuse the situation, Russian and Chinese diplomats met over 1880-1881 to hash out a deal. February 1881, this matter was concluded with the Treaty of St. Petersburg. Not the first and not the last Treaty of St. Petersburg. China got its Ely Valley lands back, but they had to pay the Tsar one million rubles, the Russians, got to keep their part of the Ely Valley on the other side of the Xinjiang border. There they settled many of Jakob Begg's former soldiers and loyalists who feared for their future livelihood under the Qing. And once this was settled, starting in the 1890s, there began a policy of full-blown state-sponsored homesteading, starting in northern Xinjiang first and then later in the south. Urumqi was made the new provincial capital, still is today. Between 1884 and 1911... Most of the officials picked to manage the government bureaucracy in this new province were Han Chinese, with more than 55% of these homesteaders coming from Liu Jintang's province of Hunan. 
And this time, the government tried something new. Rather than relying on the same old system used for millennia, this time the Qing attempted to institute direct Chinese control over the inhabitants. No more depending on local people to run things there. This had been tried time and again, and it never ended up well for whatever imperial dynasty was trying to get in on the action there. Again, like everything about Xinjiang back then, taking over and asserting control was one of those harder-to-implement-than-put-on-paper kind of things. The whole notion of Han Chinese from far away and without the numbers on the ground, bossing everyone around, no, that sure was a tall order, not to mention a historical recipe for anything in between minor local unrest to full-scale disaster. But the Qing court was determined to do this right. And if this meant building a string of Confucius institutes all over the main population centers, they'd do it. Even General Zhou Zongtang, serving as the viceroy out in those parts, he had said, quote, If we wish to change their peculiar customs and assimilate them to our Chinese ways, we must found free schools and make Muslim children read Chinese books, recognize characters, and understand spoken language. End quote. Zhou Zongtang wasn't preaching some new revolutionary idea. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. In 1883, with Zhou Zongtang winding down his long career of service to the country, 77 of these Chinese schools had been built for local boys only, eight and above. It was Chinese-style education that you might find in any village in Gansu or Shanxi, rote memorization, with a heavy emphasis on the words of the sages. It wasn't until 1907 that Xinjiang joined in on the revolution, taking place in education with the introduction of other modern subjects. As it is in any traditional society like the Uyghurs in late 19th century Xinjiang, some were okay with these Chinese ways and some weren't. And there was quite a bit of resistance to some of these changes. Many believed back then, as many believe today, the learning and education they could receive at their Muslim schools and at their respected madrasas of Kashgar, Aksu, and Yarkand was good enough. Why was all this modern education mandatory for them? In his final years of life, serving as the viceroy of Liangqiang in the east, Zhou Zongtang had championed the cause of making Xinjiang a full province of China. And central to this plan was the idea of state-sponsored Han migration to Xinjiang and, of course, assimilation by the local Uyghurs and other minorities. And once again, just as some bureaucrats are able to convince their leaders that a war or military intervention will pay for itself, so said Zhou Zongtang about Xinjiang as a province of the great Qing Empire, with all the opportunity awaiting and all this Chinese ingenuity and imported foreign technology, the sky was the limit in Xinjiang. He insisted the annexation and management of the province would not become a financial strain on the center. That is, after they put up the initial upfront investment and, you know, get the whole plan launched. That was a big if, if there ever was one. And Zhou Zongtang died a year after retirement in 1885, 72 years old. He didn't live to see his Xinjiang dreams come true. To some in China, Zhou was a great hero. And to many of the Muslim persuasion, eh, not so much. We all know what was going on in China during these years that are 
so reviled in Chinese history. These are the final decades of the already way past its sell-by date Manchu Qing Dynasty. And with all that was happening in China's coastal and interior cities, Xinjiang once again wasn't the first item on the agenda when the imperial court in Beijing met to discuss matters at hand. So let's gather our things here, and with absolute certainty, even if I have to abruptly cut off the audio, we will conclude this long history of Xinjiang next time in Part 12. If we run long, we run long. You know, everyone is asking everyone for money these days, so why should I be the exception to that rule? If you wish to contribute a few centavos to this worthy cause, join me on Patreon and get in on what you've been missing. $3 a month or more, if you feel so inclined, up to you. All kinds of special backstage access to your humble narrator. Discounts on the CHP G5, and of course, exclusive access to all these stories from my ancient past. If Patreon ain't your thing, no bother. PayPal.me slash China History Podcast. Enter a number, hit send, done. The PayPal way. What else is there to say? Except this is Laszlo Montgomery once again signing off from Los Angeles, California again and treating you to join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.